All right, Pete Giuliano, it's um, Saturday, March 28th, 2015, and I believe this is Solder Smoke 174. 174, you got it. Arduino Day, Pete. Arduino Day. Today is Arduino Day. Dave up there in New York City sent us an email alerting us to uh, Arduino Day, which is very appropriate because there will, of course, be some mention of Arduino during this Solder Smoke <laughs> podcast <laughs> uh but let, let's begin with our um bench update and i know you've got something really unusual and, and beautiful brewing or rebrewing uh on, on your bench tell us about the belthorn three right <clears throat> well let me give you a little history uh the belthorn one was actually a project called the belthorn special from uh, a ham in the UK, Ron Taylor, G4GXO. And this is about mm, maybe 12 years ago. And uh, this was uh, quite an exciting project at the time. Uh, he developed this circuit that was a uh, complete uh, transceiver IF board. Uh, essentially, you had the IF amplifiers, uh, balance modulator, product detector, audio amp, mic and really excellent AGC circuit. And uh, the heart of this was a uh, MC1350, one of those uh, IF amplifier chips. So really, really super, and, and I built it. And, of course, the uh, builder had, uh, had to come up with a VFO and had to come up with a linear power amplifier stages, which I did. And I built it for 20 meters and uh, really enjoyed operating it. And oh, it, was, it was kicking around the shack for about seven or eight years, and then... Finally, time moves on, and <laughs> you get new new toys in the shack, and so it got put in the box. And, uh, of course, the VFO I had in there was an analog VFO, but it drifted a bit, and I put one of these uh, VFO stabilizers on it. Now, one of the problems on, on voice peaks every once in a while, RF got into the VFO stabilizer, and it wasn't working too well. So I said, okay, someday I'll fix that. Well, enter the SI5351 and the Arduino, and someday is here. <laughs> So, okay. <laughs> a new day is done. New day is done. So I said, okay, this is uh, time to apply uh, some of the late, latest technology to one of these older radios. So I said, well, while I'm at it, let's add the color display. So, oh, man. So the radio now is operating, and it's in a box. Uh, there, there are actually two videos on YouTube, one about a week ago, where it's just on the bench. and it's. That uh, was, you know, I must say, I, I saw it spread out on the bench, and even for me, it was frightening. <laughs> because it, it wasn't, I just, I noticed on that first video, it wasn't just one level of bench. It was like three levels oh, of yeah, bench. yeah, yeah. So it was like, you know, like when they were playing three-dimensional chess in Star Trek. Oh, yeah, you had yeah. Three-dimensional open homebrew on the bench. It was... <laughs> Almost a bit too much. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've got it in the box now. So the latest video, which was uploaded yesterday, shows uh, the Belthorn, what I call the Belthorn 3, because it's the third one I've essentially worked on, has the color display and uh, has some other innovative uh, technology in there. One of the things that uh, I was always taken by is a Motorola gain block amplifier. And uh, these uh, gain block amplifiers are no longer manufactured by Motorola, so they're kind of hard to come by. But I found this guy that uh, must have a source of them, and he's selling them used for about $7.95, and essentially it's 50 ohms in, 50 ohms out. Uh, put uh, a few milliwatts in, you get one watt out, so it's uh, perfect for driving an IRF 510. So it has one of those, but 
there's a little bit of a problem because it's a 28 volt DC device. So how do you get 28 volts? So I bought a Meanwhile DC to DC converter, a little package unit. It's about two inches square, quarter inch high. Oh, that's the black, that the black box. Black box, there. yes. Ah. So anyway, 9 to 18 volts in produces 24 volts out. And I, I got to tell you, that's a real fine. It's about $18, but and it's good for 24 volts at uh, 600 mils. So, uh, you know, that's better than 12 watts uh, that you can get out of that jewel. And uh, really great if, <laughs> if you've got to put something 28 volts DC in a radio and operate it from anywhere from 9 to 18 volts. It works, works like a champ. Just really, really super. Encapsulated, oh, all isolated. And just wow. drop it in there, and there you go. You know, the the only time I fooled around with the DC to DC converter a little bit was with the bare bones uh, superhead, the Dale Parfit W4OP build. <clears throat> he built his. He was, I think, he was using uh, Varactor diodes in the VFO, and he had in there. At first, it confused me, but he had a DC to DC converter going in there, and the objective was just to give him more of a voltage range swing. onto the Varactor diodes, oh, the right? Swing. So he get yeah. more. More, yeah, and more of a so more of a frequency <coughs> coverage because of the DC to DC converter. Of course, I, I pulled it out and put in a variable capacitor. Yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. But but uh, it has some other few uh, features in there. Uh, it has a tune function, so you hit the tune button, and it produces an audio tone that's fed through the uh, microphone amplifier. And uh, I also put a little uh, relay right off one of the Arduino pins, so it can trip the push to talk. So I mean. Oh. That's cool. No, I, I, I watched the video. It's so cool. The color, the, the color is luring me in. I mean, it, <laughs> it, and 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 the thing is, you the couple other things I noticed. You had it tuned up on forty, right? And it was during a contest, and these guys were all CQ contest, CQ contest, and I kept saying, "When is Pete going to jump in, and and start yelling five nine at these people?" <laughs> I mean, I thought you were going to make at least one contact, but you resisted. But the other thing that I noticed, and this is something that I noticed about about 40. We've been talking about this a little bit. And I noticed it the other day because I was doing my own little Arduino experimentation on a much smaller scale over the bench. 40 must be the most channelized of bands. Because I noticed when you were tuning across on your video, every single station was transmitting on dot zero zero zero. Right. So it was, was 7.156.000. There were no, nothing after the decimal point. And they seem to be quite fastidious about that on 40. It doesn't seem to be the case on, on the higher bands because those um, free-thinking Europeans get involved <laughs> and they just transmit, you know. Yeah, anywhere. Wherever the, the spirit moves them, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need as accurate a VFO dial. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but that was pre- but I the Beltorn three I mean it's even got I don't know, it's got a kind of a retro name to it you know oh yeah it sounds like it sounds like it's it should be like an it sounds like an AM broadcast receiver from the uh, from the nineteen thirties it sounds vaguely Atwater Kentish you yeah, know yeah well Beltorn is the name of a town in UK where uh, Ron Lips G four G X oh yeah go. yeah so it's- there you go. It's sort of like up there with like Eddie Stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why it's called Beltorn. And as a matter of fact, Ron uh, has got a thriving business uh, that he ma- manufactures all kind of accessories uh, for, for amateur radio. One of those is his uh, X-Lock 3 uh, VFO stabilizer. And uh, he's got some other things. Uh, they're also sponsoring a group called an Eden 9 
which is a later variant of the belt horn, and, and it has even a microcontroller controlling the AGC. So you can look up the ED, Eden 9 on the Yahoo groups and uh, kind of get plugged into all that's happened. But uh, the color makes a big difference. And I, I was trying to put the 240 by 320 in there. Wasn't enough panel space. So that's oh, why no. that's that's why I stuck with the 128 by 128. It looks it looks really cool. And that is that 128 128 the the same size screen that we're seeing on this uh, Teen CSDR that uh, the the the, the fellow up in Canada Rich is working on. No, he has the 240 by 320. Bigger, right, yeah, bigger, bigger screen. Bigger. Yeah, but but yours is really cool. That square hole is tough. <laughs> yeah, well, I had to make two square holes. The one in the back for the uh, for the RF amplifier stage has a heat sink on it. So I had to kind of make that really precision so that the heat sink would fit through, yet you'd have enough room to bolt it to the back of the chassis. Somebody sent us an email this week saying that they noticed that this is one of the major kind of aesthetic differences between the digital and the analog world. The digital's... Every all the holes are square in digital land. Yes. yes. <laughs> His comment was he, he he got so excited when he got to drill a round hole for the toggle switch. <laughs> yeah. <woo-hoo. laughs> well, it's it's kind of it does kind of say something, you know. Yeah. It's either ones or zeros, yeah. up or down, yeah. left or yeah. right. That's yeah. it, you know. Uh, well, I, I you know kind of as a final comment, the color display in the Arduino and the SI5351 offers a lot of opportunities to retrofit some of the older projects, which which are actually really good and very excellent designs. One of the problems is it, it doesn't have, you can't read the 30 hertz, uh, you know, the frequency display. And so if you're operating like 40 meters, as you suggested, where everybody's on dot o o o o, it makes it a lot easier to uh, to line up with those frequencies. But, um, I mean, lots of possibilities. And, you know, if you add up the cost, the color display, the Arduino and the SI5351, 20 bucks. Man. 20 bucks. Yeah. There you go. It's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty impressive. <clears throat> well, I, I've been doing some similar stuff. I, I put a picture up on the blog. I, um, I had an AD9850, a DDS board that, um, that uh, Paul, M0XPD, and the guys from... Uh, uh, from Kanga UK sent over. I put that together, and I had it with an Arduino um, Uno R3 board, and I, I used the the code that we've been using from Rich AD7C. I put it in there, and I had this kind of um, a hamfest box that was just the right size. So I put the whole thing in there. Now I have this little box um, that I call it a box of DDS, and I took that bare bones receiver that I've been fooling around with, the Dale Parfit built, and basically. I've, I've done this before, but I did it in a more organized way this week and just plugged the, um, the output from the DDS into the, where, the, uh, where that, that old uh, Baractor-controlled DC-to-DC converter uh, VFO was. And so now I realize that I've got almost like an all-band receiver. Um, it, the, the, the IF is at 5 megahertz, and so if I, if I run the... And it's also set up for uh, for USB for for upper sideband, so if I run it with the uh, with the VFO above five megahertz, I never have to change the orientation of the the carrier oscillator or the or the, right. actually the, the the BFO. 
And if I want to go down to 40, that's on, on LSB, all I do is I switch the VFO down below the IF. So if I run, I run it on 40, I take it, just take it down to around 2 megahertz. And, and that way, it, the, the sidebands always come out properly into the crystal filter passband. So now I've got it set up so I can listen 40. Uh, I haven't tried 30, but I'm sure 30 would work. 40, 30, 20. I've listened on 15, 17, and even all the way up to 12 megahertz. Now, the, the one restriction I have on this is that the, uh, the, the barebone superhead has a very simple uh, coil and capacitor input filter. Just, just one little uh, tank, kind of a parallel LC circuit with a few turns uh, on the coil to, to, to impedance match from the antenna. And the range on that is rather limited. They've got a, a trimmer cap. And I know that I'm, when I'm at, at down at 7 megahertz, I'm at one extreme of the cap. And when I'm up at 12, I'm at completely at the other end. So what I might do is I might, just, just to have kind of a cool kind of general coverage receiver here for the ham bands, I might um, get, change, change that input filter. I, I, I need two, at least two, um, parallel LC circuits in there because the, the, the IF is at 5 megahertz. And guess what I'm listening to all the time in the background? WWV. <laughs> WWV, we're on time at all times. <laughs> so um, I got to I got to take care of that. But uh, I have been listening. It is quite quite a lot of fun, and it sounds great. And I, you know, as a as an analog guy, I I, I often found myself thinking, hmm, let's see, is this thing going to sound noisier than my beloved LC VFO or my VXO? Is it any appreciable difference? Well, honestly, the only difference I notice is that it's a lot more stable and I have a lot more frequency range. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I know I don't have to convince you, Pete. <laughs> but by the way, just a quick note here. Uh, it's kind of interesting to see the proliferation of the SI5351 boards. I, I know of about three manufacturers. Uh, Hans Summers in the UK is, uh, has, is marketing a board. Uh, Great guy. Uh, um, we have Adafruit Industries and uh, Jason Mildrum, uh, NT7S, up there in Oregon, has, has a board. And as a matter of fact, I, uh, I was looking at Jason's board uh, just this morning, and uh, it, it's quite like the uh, Adafruit, but has uh, w one very desirable feature. It's got four mounting holes. <laughs> and, the, and the problem with the Adafruit is it's you got a pin connection and you, you plug it into a socket and it's kind of cantilevered out there because on the other end of that is where you put the RF connectors. So I always worry about a little strain on the board. And uh, I, I guess they're assuming you're going to not put it in the socket but solder it right into a PC board. So uh, uh, Jason's board looks very, very interesting. So um, lots, lots more available to us. From various sources here so this and they're all competitively priced they're all within the same price range so uh kind of kind of an exciting time as a home brewer because we have lots of tools in the toolkit yeah um and this gets i guess is a good point to talk about my thoughts on my next project i well, we're gonna we're gonna share we're gonna finish up my tale of woe on the bid x 2040 we'll talk about that in a minute but what you just mentioned made me think you, you had asked me a while back what my next project is, and I, I think I have a, a picture of what I want to do. Um, it's kind of a combination of a, a number of different projects. It's got elements of the bid in there. It's got a heavy influence from your uh, let's build something 
project. It's got SI-5351 influence in there also. And, 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 and also it's got something in there that comes from Farhan and Wes. So it's got all these great influences. I mean, how could I go wrong? But what I want to build is a rig similar to all of those that I just discussed. But, but it's going to, instead of the, okay, let me start to here. Instead of my traditional VXO, VFO, BFO carrier oscillator, I am going to go with the SI-5351. Yay! Um, yay! Yeah. Yay! For, for, for a number of reasons. One, because it's good to do something different and to get you off my back about this. <laughs> um, but, but also, um, and it also marks a bit of a progression because the BIDX-17 was a VXO, the BIDX-2040 now BIDX-20, VFO, and so this one will be digital and uh, PLL and SI-5351. Um, but also my idea with this one is to make it kind of an all-band rig, but without a lot of switching. I figure if I use the SI-5351 and have spots for three different plug-in coils, or not, not plug-in coils, plug-in filters, I could basically set something up that would be almost infinitely kind of uh, adaptable frequency-wise across the HF spectrum. So... For example, if I wanted, if I set this rig up and I wanted to operate on 40, and I had a plug-in crystal filter, I could pick an IF that would hopefully not <laughs> cause me great trouble uh, on 40 meters. Plug plug that in. Then I would have another slot where I could plug in the bandpass filter again for 40, and a third slot where I could plug in the low-pass filter uh, for basically if you're thinking about it in a bit X configuration. So this way, and then when you combine this with the SI-5351, then I just load in the code for whatever combination BFO-VFO I need, and it's on, that, it's on those frequencies. I could even fool around with the, the, the shape and width of the crystal filter passband. Uh, I can go to 12 meters. I could go to 10. I could go all the way down to 80. There's almost, you know, any, any, any combination that you want on there would work, work very well. In terms of the, the bi-directional amplifiers, I'm going to stick with that basic bi-directional architecture that works so well in the BIDX and in the LBS. But one thing Farhan mentioned to me a while back when we were talking about the BIDX was he said, you know, consider the use of the 50-ohm in, 50-ohm out. I guess it's non-transparent uh, bi-directional amplifiers. And there's an article out and... Um, he uh, and Wes is the one who, who wrote it about how to build these kinds of 50 amp uh, uh, non-transparent amplifiers. And what we mean by that is uh, that the amplifier input will be 50 ohms independent of what's at the amplifier output. So this, this helps you nail down the, the impedance going through the system very easily. And I think it makes it easier also then to figure out what kind of match you need, especially around that crystal filter. Right. To get to get the the proper ripple characteristic in there because all of that is very much dependent on the impedance at either end of the filter. So there you go, SI5351, vaguely BIDX-ish, plug-in filters and 50 ohm non-transparent amps. Uh, what do you think? Oh, I, I think that's perfect. You know, as you were describing that, the the thought kept floating through my mind. This is an experimenter's platform, is what it is. Yep. So 
you, you know, you, you have an operating uh, transceiver, but at the same time, you have a, uh, a, a built-in built experimental device that just by plugging in different filters, uh, different frequencies, different ranges, you don't have to build another one and you don't have to tear things up. It's just plug it in and change some lines of code and you're there. So I, I, I think that's, that's, a, that's a terrific idea. I really do. I, I think that's a great, great way to approach it. Now, now you mentioned tearing things apart, and this might be a good moment to talk about what happened to my BIDX twenty-four. Oh. I think we left our, our our listeners hanging last time. Um, yeah, this is a kind of a sad story, but I, I I noted that every dark cloud has a silver lining, and I know it. I know that our our listeners seem to enjoy it when I I do something particularly misguided or unplanned or ridiculous and i did it in this case um so i my idea was i was going to build the bit x 2040 now, these are two bands that i'm interested in and i, I kind of fooled around i try to figure what what if should i use how can i do this with a vfo and my idea was okay if i pick the if properly then i could have one vfo and then just shift it a bit to cover either 20 or 40 and the if that seemed seemed uh, suitable for this was um, the uh, an 11 megahertz uh, of VFO. Farhan had done a similar 2040 rig, but he wisely used a 10 megahertz IF. But I thought I would do it with 11 megahertz. Now Farhan did it smart because all he did was he used two different VFOs. I mean, the VFO circuitry is really small, so why not just put two of them in there and you have one for 20 and one for 40 and you don't have to worry about it. But I kind of, without really thinking about that, I read about Farhan's VFO circuits afterwards. wish I'd read about it beforehand, but I figured, okay, I'll just shift the VFO. And uh, anyway, to make a long story short, the bottom line is that I ended up with a VFO frequency that has a second harmonic way too close to the 40 meter band. So at one point, the, um, the, the second harmonic of my VFO is going to be at 7.4 megahertz. So just, uh, you know, hard to filter, hard to yeah, filter. Really, really hard to filter because that bandpass filter, LC filter, it's going to have skirts that are going to be going widened. And not only that, and that we, I'm really grateful to, to you and to, to Allison, um, uh, KB1GMX, and Alan Wolke, W2AEW, who advised me on this. But Allison, well, Allison was the one who pointed out that this was really what could be considered a fatal flaw in the design. Because she said, look, even if you filter that VFO and get all of the, the harmonics out of the output of the VFO, that... Uh, mixer is inherently, by definition, it has to be very, very nonlinear. So it's going to generate its own second harmonic, and there's almost nothing that you could do to really successfully knock that down. And you know, we started seeing signs of this in the output of of the rig when I would put the rig on 20 meters, where the harmonics of the VFO were nowhere near the uh, the the bandpass filter passband. Everything was nice and steady and smooth and sinusoidal. But as soon as I put it on 40, no matter what I did, 
we would see kind of jittering, jumping up and down in the in the waveform coming out. It was clearly at, at 7.2 megahertz, but it was jumpy, jumpy, jumpy. And not only that, if we look closely, you'd see in there elements of Second a frequency yeah. that was that was close, but not quite there. I think that was what was causing the jitter. And basically, when this thing got to the the amplifier, the CCI amplifier, um, all hell broke loose. Yeah, yeah. And we started getting into um, into really bad oscillations, and that's when I started getting um, some really critical feedback from the denizens <laughs> of forty meters. Those guys don't like anything different. Yeah, yeah. If, if it sounds different, yeah. they get very upset. Yeah. They're set in their ways. They're set on their frequencies. Somebody was telling me they don't even like to change the frequencies because they're afraid it's going to disturb the the rig or the SWR or the microphone or or their audio settings or something like that. So gotta be very careful. Those guys are very touchy and they they didn't didn't like the sound of this thing. But anyway, um, I listened, of course, to to Allison because Allison really knows what she's talking about on this subject. And I said, okay, I, I agonized it. You and I agonized it. I, I was trying to think of ways that I could save the 40 meter element on this rig. I, cause I, I just liked having that switch to go from 40 to 20. It seemed so nice, but in the end, discretion is the better part of valor. And you have to say, what's the word you have to use Pete? Basta. <laughs> Basta. <laughs> so I, we reached the Basta point and I went in there one morning early and did the necessary, what we call it. Exorcism. Exorcism. Right. Right. 40 meter amputation. Yeah. Oh man, I went in there and I disconnected the the uh, the filters for 40 meters. I dis <laughs> and I disconnected the uh, the the relay that would switch the the carrier oscillator from one side of the passband to the other. But there was a saving grace here. There was a kind of a a a a, a, a silver lining on the dark cloud. Billy Billy used to say something when he was a little kid. He heard that saying and he looked at me one time and he said. Dad, on every face of sadness, there's a pimple of happiness. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love All right. It. He's going to be mad that I repeated <laughs> that because now he's a cool 17-year-old guy. But anyway, um, hold on. I hit the wrong button there. I think we're okay. Yeah. Oh, I turned my video off. Yeah. That's pretty bad. Yeah. Anyway, there we go. We're back. Oh, audio's good. Um, anyway, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the silver lining on this was that that mechanism that I had used to shift the, the VFO frequency from a range suitable for 20 to a range suitable for 40, I realize now I could use just to move the VFO so that I would have two tuning ranges on the 20-meter band. Because I'm using an LC cap, I'm, I'm using a, a, a regular variable cap out of a Heathkit QF1 Q multiplier, by the way, which adds an element of, uh, something of old. class. Yeah, something old. Yeah, All right. And, um, but if you put, if you tried to put the entire 20 meter phone band on one kind of rotation of this variable capacitor, man, you'd, you'd be, it, the tuning would be so precise that you wouldn't really be able to right. easily properly tune in. You need to spread it out a bit. So now I have it. So I have, I have the switch, the switch that used to go from 20 to 40 now goes from the low end of the 20 meter phone band to the high end of the 20 meter phone band. So the, in the upper position, it covers what the, the lower 100 KCs 
and in the the blower in the higher position it covers the upper 100 kcs tuning is really a breeze it's very very stable i'm gonna let you guys listen how about if we do a little sure listen? sure Contest. <laughs> yeah. That's on the low end of the band. And it goes all the way down. I cover the complete phone band. Now I'm going to throw the switch to the high end of the band. A lot of contesting today. Whiskey, sugar, 7 x-ray. Anyway, good luck to them. I hope they get all five nines. I'm sure they will. <laughs> yeah. By the way, uh, I, I wanted to just uh, jump in here with a couple of comments. One, uh, that's a technique uh, that Wes Hayward frequently used to, to get a cover a whole band, was that uh, he used a kind of a coarse and fine uh, yeah. tuning cap and, and I think that's a really good way to do it because uh, matter of fact uh, there's a 20 meter radio that uh, I built I rebuilt it was one that was in the box not working this was about a year ago and I got I put it back on 20 meters and they fixed the problem and and the thing was it didn't there was not enough room to put a vernier drive in there so it was a direct yeah. on the capacitor so finally I just said okay I'm going to limit the tuning range to a smaller portion because you tune right past the signals and by having the the, the two uh, two switch position gives you essentially band spread is what it does because yeah. you're tuning at a slower rate. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an old old technique. I'm looking over at my Hammerland HQ100, which has two tuning dials: band set and band yeah, spread. Yeah, and we also see this in the Bidex, the original Bidex design. You know, they were they were trying to use parts that would be easily available. So in his original design, Farhan has as the kind of the band set, the kind of the coarse tuning, a polyvericon that you could pull out of transistor radios. And then for the fine tuning, he has varactor di diodes in there, so you could do the fine tuning right there. So you're right, it's an old, it's an old concept. It works great. Just using the one capacitor, but, but using a relay to switch in. I end up switching in about, I think about, what was it, about... 30 or 40 picofarads and that enables me just to shift it so that I get that I get almost like one kc overlap at the center but then the upper portion of the band the lower portion of the band I used um, I used a spreadsheet to to kind of calculate how much of how much capacitance I would need to switch in to move the range in this direction so that worked out really well but I it uh, the, the the thing with uh, it was a real it was a real trial it was a real hair pulling experience it was disheartening but there were several things that happened along the way that kind of kept me going and one is I I remembered this old a video we have of Gene Shepard the old recording of Gene Shepard in 1965 describing his experience with a very similar problem and i'm just going to talk about here for a couple sure, minutes sure. because i just love this thing and i'm not sure everybody had a chance to listen to it but shepherd was a, a ham and it must have been uh 1930s and he had built a 160 meter 10 watt transmitter using heising modulation and uh he was so anxious to get this thing on the air and he finally got on the air and then he he describes 
how one of the old timers, one of the kind of the tall ships, one of the big guns on 160 meters out there in Indiana reacted and with, with, with scorn to his signal that sounded like something was really wrong with it. And he, he said that he knew it was really bad and he, he was so discouraged because he said, he said, if you ever heard um, a signal with parasitics on it, you've you got to know what it sounds like. It sounds like your signal is, quote, being attacked by a debauched, a group of debauched erotic locusts. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, and like I said, he really nails it, describing the scornful kind of dismissive tone. The guy was telling him, look, uh, you're like, oh man, you really got problems there. It, it's so bad that you, re- you probably really shouldn't come back to me. You're, you're messing up the entire band. So uh, you really need to get that squared away there, old man. I, I don't know what to tell you, but uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe uh, maybe get somebody to help you with it. And oh man, you know, Shepard was, was, was squirming. So then he describes how, you know, he had a date with a, a girl from, from his high school. And they were, they were supposed to go watch a movie and get, you know, uh, a sandwich or something. And the whole time that he was on the date, he couldn't think of anything except <laughs> his technical problem. And, and, and he, I mean, he's so right. He said that he, the girl kept asking him if something was wrong. And then finally he told her what was wrong. And, and she thought this was the craziest thing she ever heard of. But he said, look, he said, um, he said, look, I'm worried. I'm worried. He said, um, he said, Nobody is more worried, quote, than, than a man who has built something and can't get it to work. <laughs> oh, yes. And we've all, we've all been there. We've all yeah, been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, then he uh, finally, uh, you know, the date just goes from bad to worse because he's, his, his mind is completely on the Heising modulator <laughs> 160 meters. Incredible as it may seem, but it, it, it's, it, yeah, I could, I could see it. And finally, the girl tells him that it's the worst date that she was ever on and that she thinks that there is really something wrong with him <laughs> and, that, and that his mother should take him to the doctor. <laughs> Years later, he, um, he, he comes, he's out of the army and he goes back to his hometown and he happens to run into this girl in the, in the, in the, in the store where she's working and they kind of, oh yeah, I remember you, I remember you. And then she, she looked at him and she said, that problem that we discussed, did you, did you ever get any, did you ever get that resolved? Now she was talking about his obsession and he he said, he just smiled. He said, yeah, I got it resolved. And he was thinking in his head, I got the thing to work. (laughs) (laughs) But I really, you know, Shep is one of our uh, homebrew heroes here. And he, he, he came up, he was talking about the the obsession and the, the, the compulsion to get this thing fixed. He actually comes up with a quote from King Lear. You know, we're, we're, this is kind of a, this is highfalutin stuff for us here, Pete, but I'll show it. He says, oh, that way madness lies. Let me shun that. No more of that. In other words, basta. <laughs> and that's what I'd said with my 40 meter problem. My BIDX 2040 is now happily a bit X20, where it probably should be. And um, anyway, thanks to Allison, to you, and to uh, to Alan for for helping with that trials and those trials and tribulations. Thanks also to Gene Shepard 
Excelsior. By the way, before you move off of Gene Shepard, you know, he, he's the guy that wrote that Christmas story about the, oh, kid, yeah. the kid that wanted the BB gun for Christmas. Shoot your eye out, yeah. just shoot your eye out. But, but look at the compulsion of that kid. I mean, he, 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 that's just the way he operated, you know. He, he wanted, wanted the, a Red Rider BB yeah, gun. Yeah, yeah. Worst way. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Father and I used to listen to Shep. Shep, he's, he's inspirational. Um, but uh, anyway, you know, there's still one problem remains with this whole 40-meter system. And this is kind of interesting, too. I'll just mention it here in sort of in the troubleshooting vein. Um, I, I kind of determined that there were problems in the transceiver. But then you suggested also, and I think you're absolutely right, there were also some problems in the amplifier itself on 40 meters. And so uh, I know that I'm, I'm eventually going to get a rig running on 40. It may be the one that we just described a few minutes ago. But I, I still have to go in there and stabilize the, uh, the, the solid-state amp from CCI on 40 meters. You know, it's kind of counterintuitive, but these solid-state amps, especially BJT amps, are more prone to instability the lower in frequency you go because they're um, high gain. Gain, gain, higher gain. Yeah. And simple circuits such as the one I'm using don't really have any feedback networks in them. Some of the more sophisticated designs have feedback networks that reduce the gain as you go lower in frequency. This one doesn't have anything like that. It's a real simple, you know, EB63A, a Motorola Design Notes, a basic amplifier. So you really have to watch it. So the amplifier is stable upon. 20 meters and 17 meters, but it starts getting unstable when I get down to 7 megahertz. But uh, I've got some ideas on how to stabilize it, and I, a lot of them from Doug DeMoor, uh, but, but, but good stuff. But these parasitics, Pete, yeah. they, can drive, yeah. they can drive you nuts. Yeah. But by the way, this, this weekend is a good weekend to operate on 40 meters, lots of DX. <laughs> Not that I want to make you feel bad. <laughs> well, what's the contest? What is this contest? It's a anyway? CQ Worldwide. Ah, and oh, and a- you asked the question. You said, "How come you didn't grab the microphone and contact someone?" So I have uh, the linear amp hooked up to it, so I get about 120 watts out. And my first contact with the uh, the Belthorn Three was with HK1T. Ah, so it works. All right, <laughs> it works. And then you said, "Basta." Basta. I said five nine triple oh one. Well, I, you know, I, I've I, it, actually, you know, as much as we kind of are make fun of the contesters, and it's it's clearly not our thing, and and I think many most of our listeners are probably not into it. But there there is a, a place for it when you are testing out a new rig. I mean, and you want to get a lot of different reports, you you can get a lot of them real quick, and uh, and uh, and you can work some DX with the thing. So I, I did that a, a while back. I think it was the uh, the the, the AWRL. Uh, phone sweepstakes or something, and I worked a whole bunch of stations on that. Right. Um, I mean, I don't keep score or anything, but you know, if, if you could help them out and, and get a few reports for yourself, why not? Did, didn't you win the QRP division for Northern oh, Virginia? S- several years. The, 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 I'm, I'm no proud. Double sideband. Double sideband. Double, yeah, the, the double sideband Northern Virginia QRP category. Yeah. 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 It's uh, homebrew. Homebrew. <clears throat> yeah. It's, 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 it's a select group of us who are involved in this competition, but I, I have one year after year I, I i didn't i don't think i entered this this time around but um anyway uh, pete i think the next thing we want to talk about is very much related to uh troubles and tribulations trials and tribulations and and hair pulling and uh, basta and uh, uh 
that way madness flies and all that. And, and somebody had asked to talk about test gear, simple test gear that, uh, that we can get on the, the Internet. And I know you had some thoughts on that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the thing is um, you're almost torn between whether you buy something or since this is Arduino Day, there's a lot of neat testers out there that are Arduino-based. I mean, there's power meters, there's uh, SWR meters, uh, that sort of thing. So don't don't overlook the the possibility of maybe even homebrewing uh, some some test gear. But you know, if you're going to get into homebrewing, there are certain basic things that you get, you're going to have to have. Like for instance, when we uh, wrote the article on the LBS, it's kind of hard to build the LBS without an oscilloscope or access to an oscilloscope. I mean, you, you really need to, to be able to do that. So uh, prices on oscilloscopes are coming way down. And uh, I, I guess uh, if you get a, a, a 100 megahertz analog scope, you're going to pay a couple hundred bucks. You can get a 100 megahertz digital storage oscilloscope for a few dollars more. So, I mean, yeah. sa- save your money and, and invest in that. But certainly having a, a, a good digital voltmeter is another thing for, for taking voltage measurements. Uh, another thing as high on the list is an LC meter. And, and I got to... I got to tell you, this is a very interesting experience. I I bought 600 capacitors from China for six bucks. So I said, "Oh man, what a deal! 600 penny a piece. What a deal! All those sorted values." Well, luckily I have an uh, almost all digital electronics LC meter, and I said, "I'm going to check these things out." Well, guess what? They are nowhere near <laughs> what's what's marked on the on the caps. I mean. And you would never have known. I would have never known. And, and you know, you, you put something in the circuit and say, well, it doesn't work. What did I do wrong? Well, the problem may be that the parts that you're using, especially these bargain parts, I think I wasted six bucks. I mean, unless I tested every one of them and know what their real value is, uh, I can't just look at the face value of it and plug it in the circuit and assume it's going to work. So that that's really important. A signal source. Now, this is where an Arduino, since this is Arduino Day, come. I mean, you can get an AD9850 and an Arduino, an LCD display, and you got a heck of a stable signal source for all sorts of testing and evaluation. I mean, there's it's a pretty simple build, just a few wire connects. Uh, the software is available. You're using AD7Cs. Right. His, 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 code. his code. So, I mean, it's available. Download it. And you now have a signal source, and I think that you can add offsets to that as well. You can. You can do the IF offset, yeah. and you can use it for VFO. It's it's a very useful little box to have. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think when guys are getting started in homebrew, and we have received a lot of, oh, a number of emails from people who are saying, look, I want to get started. What should I get? I mean, one thing I think you, you have to realize, you don't need it all at once, but you, you, you do kind of have to, you really have to start out with, you have to have something. Yeah. There. You have to have some test gear, and you should do it. Do it. I think all of us have done it gradually, but I mean, certainly start with um, a digital voltmeter or a voltmeter yeah. of some sort. And you know, a lot of these digital voltmeters, when you look at them, you realize you're getting a lot of additional capacity in there. I mean, mostly they're for measuring resistance and and voltage and 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 current. But some of them will also have features in there that'll let you that they'll be they'll they'll be a crude frequency counter in some of them. Transistor checker. Transistor checkers. Yeah. yeah. Even even some of them might even have crude kind of LC testers in there. Yeah. 
Yeah. I've seen some of those. But so I mean I picked one up from from Radio Shack 20 years ago. I still use it. And uh, I mean there it's I use it every every time I'm at the bench. I mean you're using it for simple stuff to figure out whether the juice is getting to the to the collector of the transistor, something like that. So that's that's a definite yeah. first start. And, and you need some sort go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, and and the other thing is you need a, a bit of you need a power supply. Time and again we hear from guys who are having trouble with a rig, and then usually you're the one who asks them, Pete, what kind of power supply yeah, are you running? Yeah. And they'll tell you, oh, I got a wall wart. Yeah. You know, one of these little plug-in things that says 12 volts out. But, man, it's that's that's like a – you're just asking for trouble if you're using those things because the, 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 the voltage coming out could be really kind of nasty and noisy and um, – and you might not be able to pull as much current as you need and everything else. So there's a lot of little power supplies that you could pick up that'll give you, you know, solid, regulated, measurable. It's nice to have a couple of meters on there right. so you could see what the voltage is and how much current the circuit's pulling. I have a number of power supplies on the on the bench. I think it's, it's, it's useful to have a number of them there. Um, you know... One other thing I'd mention is a, a, a simple general coverage receiver, a little shortwave receiver, preferably one that has a BFO in it, like uh, some of the Sony transceivers. You could probably pick them up on on eBay or on Amazon used for, for, for very little money. But this, this I mean, it's, it's an amazing capacity. I mean, if you have an oscillator, even if you don't have an oscilloscope, and you have, as part of your circuit, you say you have an oscillator that's running at, at, at 2 megahertz, you need, a, you need some way to know whether that thing is going or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. And if you have a receiver that you could tune to 2 megahertz and it has a BFO in it, you turn the thing on, you hold it up right next to the rig, and if you hear, that's it. Yeah, you got it's, it. It's percolating. Yeah. You turn off the rig and the, the noise goes away. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. So I mean, that's another piece of gear. I, I wanted to jump in here about power supplies, and I want to share with you an email that I got this morning from Ed Carpenter. N3 EML. As a matter of fact, uh, I mentioned Ed in our last podcast who, who had the SDR dongle. And, uh -huh, and he, yeah. he was looking to have the SI5351 supply the uh, 125 megahertz uh, crystal oscillator uh, frequency. Well, he sent me an email this morning. He said, I, I sent him a bunch of data. <clears throat> and he said, well, that, uh, that was very helpful. He said, but when he powered the thing up, he said, God, the spectrum was terrible. He couldn't hear anything. There was noise all over the place, and it was just, he said, nothing was working. And uh, he had initially hooked his uh, Arduino Nino at Uno to his uh, laptop and programmed it, but once he had the SI5351 programmed, he didn't, didn't need it connected, and he discovered that the reason his circuit was not working was his power supply to the laptop. <laughs> was generating a broadband RF spectrum, wiping out the front end. So when he disconnected the, the power supply from the laptop, everything worked perfect. So this issue of power supply, this is like the wall ward. This, this is the typical problem that you have with the wall ward. It produces this yeah. spectrum of noise that, that masks everything, and you don't think the thing is working. He said, now it's working perfect. He's powering it off a 9-volt battery now, and everything is working fine. So... You know that there's much to be said for these bargain power supplies. A good linear supply at a couple amps, variable, adjustable, is worth its weight in gold. 
That's it. And uh, <laughs> so look at those power supplies. You know, you mentioned the LC meter, and um, you know uh, the uh, that, that's I think that's really important. I was at the uh, the Vienna Wireless Hamfest, uh, the, their Winterfest with uh, with Armand WA1 UQO uh, last weekend, and he uh, he just recently put together the almost all digital electronics LC meter. I mean that this this is a piece of gear. I guess it's something you buy when you're a little bit further down the line in home brewing, but like you said, it's it's really really useful. I mean, you wind that coil, you wind some toroidal coil, and it you know the the chart will tell you to put you know 12 turns on it so that you can come up with the desired three microhenries, but then you don't really know whether you got three microhenries or not. You know, it, there's a lot of variation the way you wound it, how tight you wound it, where the coil, where the windings are sitting. How big of floor. a gap you got at the bottom. Yeah, yeah and, and just there might be just some variation in the characteristics of the core that you're working with. And you take it and you put it on that LC meter and you see, up, oh, you got, um, you know, 2.8. Well, Big you difference. Can, Big difference. You could put, a diff, you could put, a di- you could put an additional turn on it. Might, maybe you squeeze them together a little bit. You get it. You, then you know. You know what's in there. And this is really important when you're designing, you know, filters, bandpass filters, uh, low-pass filters. And like you said, you also you get a you get a box full of variable capacitors. But at the Hamfest, lots of boxes of variable capacitors. This is really useful pieces of gear. But you can't tell from looking at them really <laughs> what the minimum value and the maximum value is. But then you have this LC meter, you can measure them, and then you take out that uh, marker pen and you mark it. So the next time you reach into the junk box, you know that this thing goes from six to 156 picofarads. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, good good stuff. But uh, start building up those um, the the arsenal of, of test gear in, in the scope. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, all of us get to the point where we're we're so dependent on the scope because it's such a useful device. But even there, you have to sort of learn how to use it and what the capabilities are. A- Amen. By, by the way, I want to do um, also make a comment. Uh, but maybe before we go that comment, do you want to cover the SCD? Oh, the SCD, the uh, the Shameless Commerce Division. That's right. Yeah. Well, a couple of things I'm going to mention here, as long as we're into the Shameless Commerce Division. And thank you for reminding me. <coughs> I always forget. Um, first, everybody should stay tuned because I think we're going to have an important announcement coming up about a new sponsor for the show. You and I have been talking about this a little bit. It's 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 a bit out there. We hope it works. It it could change in to a certain extent the character of the show, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't want to divulge the details. Right. We'll, we'll do it. We'll do it later in the week. Right. Keep an eye on the blog. You'll see. And and if any of you guys really have objections to this, let us know. We're very attentive to the uh, desires and uh, preferences of our listening audience. But I don't know. We're 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 a bit torn. But we're gonna we're gonna see how it goes, and and the announcement will come out. In the middle of the week, in terms of the rest of um, the Shameless Commerce Division, I'd encourage people to um, to continue to use the Amazon link on the blog page at www.soldersmoke.blogspot.com. If you've got to buy something from Amazon, buy it through the Solder Smoke page because cha-ching, Amazon sends us money. And you know, with this new uh, drone business that they're going to be launching, there's going to be a whole lot more money, and they're going to be delivering that stuff. You know, within seconds to your home, there's going to be a drone sweeping down from the sky delivering you those uh, 
0.1 microfarad uh, bypass capacitors. It's going to be great. And uh, on every delivery, we'll get a little bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> and the books. Look at the books, too. I think people will like the uh, Us and Them book. And the Solder Smoke book is, uh, continues to be very popular. And so uh, the books are available at Amazon, Lulu, and, um, and, uh, and Create Space. And uh, you can buy it from the Apple Bookstore everywhere. Check it out. Check it out. You'll like Shameless Commerce Division. By the way, I hope you saw something. I bought something. Uh, off the block, I bought a uh, Arduino Mega, and and it was re- a twenty five sixty, a really excellent price, one of the best prices I've seen. And I had it two days later, sitting in my hands. It works. Cha ching. Cha ching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, let's see. We were talking about the the test gear, and scopes, and you know, yeah. I mean, we've talked about it here on the blog. I mean here on the podcast, but scopes are, are, are so important. And I, I started out with a Tech 465 analog scope, and I have an, a Hamig simple analog scope. And, but then I had trouble with the, uh, the Tech 465. They get old, and they're complicated. And I, I opened it up, and it was, I mean, really intimidating. A lot of plug-in transistors, a lot of really sensitive connections, and I kind of knew I was over my head. I sent it away to a guy who, who really knows his stuff on this, and he got it fixed. And then when it got back to me shortly thereafter, another problem cropped up. So, I mean, these things are getting old, and it reaches a point where you could spend all of your bench time fixing your test gear. And I kind of want to get it away, wanted to get away from that. So I went with the Rigol scope. The Rigol. This is a lot of different of these digital storage scopes that that you mentioned. Mine is. A Rigol 1102E. It's a 100 megahertz scope which means that it can be used reliably to measure signals up to 100 megahertz, probably a little bit beyond, but it's rated up to 100 megahertz, which is good for our purposes. It's important to know that you shouldn't say to yourself, well, I'm only going to be working up to 10 meters, so I only need a 30 megahertz scope. Not true. Not true. Because you want to be able to see the harmonics, right? So if you have a 100 megahertz scope, even if you're operating up to 30 megahertz, you'll be able to see the third harmonic which is important. And uh, if you have a scope that only goes right up to the f- operating frequency, you could look at it and say, everything is beautiful. It's perfect. My signal is a sine wave, as pure as the driven no. snow. Yeah. But no, it's only you're being deceived because your test gear is not allowing you to see where your ugly, <clears throat> ugly problems are. And those gentlemen on 40 meters will let you know about it. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's far better to find out about these problems from your oscilloscope. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I've been real happy with the Rigol scope. They're small, they're lightweight, um, and, man, they have capabilities in there. You really, you really need to take a course. I mean, you don't, in the beginning, you could just use it for, as a scope. But as I went through this problem with the 2040 rig, Pete, I, I found capabilities in there that I was vaguely aware of but hadn't really explored. Man, they got a fast Fourier transform in there. That pretty much makes it kind of a functional equivalent of a spectrum analyzer, wouldn't you say? Yes, absolutely. I mean, what, what's really the difference between a, a, a spectrum analyzer and this scope running fast Fourier transform? Well, you'll probably find the purists will tell you you need a tracking generator and you need you know a bunch of other ancillary equipment to really have a spectrum analyzer. But I, I look at it this way. Good enough and quick and dirty and you can you can see the second and third harmonic and if you see something there you know you got a problem 
You may yeah. not be able to quantify it to the, the nth degree with all the other associated ancillary pieces of equipment you need, but it'll, it'll tell you that you got a problem, so stop. <laughs> Find the right. problem. Yeah, no, I, and I, I've used it now, and you, you get good at it. Also, one of the things, one of the features that I really like on the Rigol scope and on these digital scopes, and these are features that you're just not going to find on the old analog scopes as much as we love them. I, I have all kinds of filtering capability in the Rigol scope, so I can set on the scope, in the scope, a low-pass filter. So, for example, if I see that, you, you could tell when you look at the waveform, you could tell if there's a lot of harmonics in there. It, it's not at all sinusoidal. It's 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 bumpy, in a bump bumpy in a regular way. I guess is the way to describe it. There are regular bumps as a pattern in there. You could see that there's more than one frequency, and the other frequency is a multiple. It's a second or third harmonic. Now you can find out exactly which one it is because you set that low pass filter, and then you start moving it up and down. And it and if you're looking at a seven megahertz signal. And you move the low-pass filter down, and then you move it below 14 megahertz, and all of a sudden that signal becomes beautiful on your screen. <laughs> it's beautiful because you're no longer looking at the second harmonic. You're looking just at the fundamental. So your problem is that you've got the second harmonic there. You can do the same thing with the third. It gives you a better sense of where where the problem is coming from. That's an amazing feature. Data. It's data. This here's the other thing. This, these digital storage scopes have in them a frequency counter. They've got multiple, I mean, you can, you can look at multiple frequencies. You can do math. You, can, you could just set it up so that it'll automatically do math calculations for you. You could, you could have, you know, you, you could set it so that it'll give you readouts in voltage, peak to peak, um, RMS, just peak, whatever you want. And uh, look at, you know, several different signals at the same time. Uh, obviously, I'm really taken with this stuff. And I, I think that if somebody's getting to the point where they're, you know, they, they're, they're kind of saying, all right, I've got the, uh, the digital voltmeter, I've got the LC meter, and maybe what's my, what's my next step? What should I get? Look at one of these little scopes. Yeah, I, I think I'd put my order, a digital voltmeter scope, then LC meter, and, and uh, other things beyond that. I, I, I just really, and, and I think that model that you have is less than 400 bucks. I, no, I think it is. I think it's. I think it's closer to three hundred. Yeah. Yeah. So. And so, I mean, it's it, it's really well worth it, and it uh, it takes up very little room on the bench, easy to carry around. I mean, I, I'm really pleased with it. So, uh, I think you're right. I mean, I think those of us who've been doing this for a while really get get dependent on the scope. Interesting though, 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 Allison said that she doesn't use the scope as much as she uses the spectrum analyzer. She she said that's her one of her main tools. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> But those, but those of us who are, are yeah, but, don't have kind of arsenal of test gear. Right? Yeah, but that's her. The spectrum analyzer a lot more. A lot more but expensive. I mean, she's a consultant, so that's yeah. that. That's just like walking in the front door, you know. Uh, she's, <laughs> she's, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess if we had the spectrum analyzers, would be yeah. would be useful. You know, um, uh, Pat Hawker, G three VA. He when when transistors were first coming out, he was he was saying that uh, he thought that, that that this wouldn't be a good way for the hams to go because to use Transistor circuits, effectively, we all needed spectrum analyzers, and we don't have them, and they're too expensive, so stick with the tubes. I mean, and Pat eventually came around, but that was one of the initial fears. Hey, but you were you were there in the early days, too. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I couldn't believe it. You, you, you don't like me to mention this. This was amazing. You know, 
I, I put this on the blog. You know, Pete Giuliano here was building transistor audio amplifiers in 1953. Yeah, yeah. That was like four or five years after Sharkley, Bardeen, and, yeah. and Tain did their thing. Yeah. You were, you were, you were cutting edge as an 11-year-old boy. Yeah, yeah. 11, 11 years old. Can you believe that? I mean, this is really amazing. Yeah. Um, and I love the story. That The story, I, I actually, I told my wife this story. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a really nice story. And I said, because I, I asked Pete, I said, Pete, why as an 11-year-old boy in 1953 did you get it in your head that you needed to build a solid-state audio amplifier? Tell us the story, Pete. Because I had a crystal set. <laughs> and and got you, who got you into the crystal my dad, set? My dad. Crystal set. Yeah. And I had a crystal set, and you had to, had to listen to it with the headphones. So I said, man, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. Get a little speaker, you know, and hook it up, and you, you're there you are. You now have an audio amplifier on the end of a crystal radio. Oh, man. And you, your dad didn't, you know, the most most people at that point would have thought about a tube type amplifier, but your your father was looking out for you, and he was worried about the high yeah, voltage. Yeah, he said you're going to electrocute yourself. You know, it's like shoot your eye out. <laughs> right, right, right. But 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 I mean, but but he was but but he pointed you in the, in yes, the direction yes. that put you on the, the cutting edge. What was the What was the transistor? It was a CK seven twenty two Raytheon. C- Raytheon, and I, I put a picture of this thing with a cool blue case. Oh yeah, with a red. You, you were you were you were attracted to the cool blue colors oh, early yeah, on. Yeah, and I know you like those blue glowing numerals yeah, too. Yeah, well, you, you know, one thing I, I got involved with transistors after I built the oscillator that wiped out the TV. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but anyway, um, a lot of a lot of good stuff with the test gear. Um, Hey, one other piece of test gear that I'm looking at, and I think that it has some real potential. And you mentioned it before: the dongles yes. that that produce the, uh, the the pan adapter, the kind of frequency display. Now, these devices, and they're 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 showing up in all of the the major uh, manufacturers' rigs, all of the the big kind of uh, like I don't want to use the term appliance, but all the big Yasus, Kenwoods, Icoms, all of them have this like screen on the front that provides a panoramic display and th- this is what really got me into a lot of trouble on 40 meters because there's a lot of these guys who are just sitting there they're like self-appointed hall monitors yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they sit back and they look at the whole band and if somebody pops up that's a little bit wider or a little bit noisier or a little they bit messed the up they, the they, they jump down hey old man you know you're, you're really you're you're 2.7 kcs wide instead of 2.5, and uh, I don't know about that. You're 30 hertz off. I, yeah, you're 30 hertz <laughs> off. There's a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, anyway, I um, there I can see the the usefulness of this kind of capability even as a piece of test gear. And Pete, I received yesterday. Uh, it was a, it was a happy day here. Issue number 162 of our beloved Sprat uh, magazine from the UK. And they've got a lot of great articles in here. Anybody, everybody should subscribe to Sprat. The, 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 first, the first article is a two-band ceramic VXO by our friend Peter Parker, VK3YE, down there, down under. And then there's um, the next don't, one don't is... Don't leave that a second. That's the answer to his problem with shifting the VFO. That's right. That, that was a solution. You know, you were talking about shifting the yeah. VFO to 80 to 40 to 20, or his right, is 80 right. no, to 40. I, I, so. Look at the second the second paragraph. It comprises two Culpitz oscillators and a Buffett stage. Yeah. That, 
Yeah. There you go. Throw an additional transistor. Well, they they only cost like thirteen cents. Four if right. you buy them in bulk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The switch three point five eight and three point six eight megahertz oscillators cover nearly all of eighty meters. Yeah. Unusual for a ceramic resonator rig. Very good, Peter. Yeah. Always great stuff. There it is. Beautiful. Then there's um, a primer for short wave short for a primer for short software defined radio. SDR using the RTL two eight three two U R eight T O T dongle by Ken Marshall. And you got to get and that this, one with those part numbers. He's very I mean, adamant oh, in there. And it, but he but he's it's really cool because he actually shows you how to modify it and go in there. The article's got some great illustrations. Um, terrific stuff. And um, you know, three cheers to to George Dobbs and the and the GQRP club for putting this all together. I understand George is going to be receiving some very very um, well-deserved honors at the upcoming Dayton oh, Hambitch. Cool. So, uh, congratulations to you, uh, George. I mean, wow, what a contribution here. Then there's um, another article by Tony. Our friend Tony Fishpool has more on using the RTL 2832U R802T2OT dongle. Wow, and he shows the spectrum display. He's got a little circuit there for, uh, for, for, for hooking it up. Appropriately enough, it's on 40 meters right in his display. Thanks, Tony. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get one of these things. Because that way, I'll know. I mean, I'm not going to do to other people what they've done to me. I'm not going to join the hall monitors, but I'll be able to say, no, I'm looking at it here, right here, and I'm 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 clean as a whistle. Um, the Iller 40. Uh, this is an interesting rig. Uh, we mentioned this a long time ago on the blog, but it's a it's a design out of Spain. It's called the Iller I L E R 40, and uh, I I came across this the other day, and I was reminded of it, and I looked. It's a very nice rig. It's a single sideband rig uh, using crystal filters. Mm-hmm. He's, he's got the option for uh, a DDS VFO, and um, he's selling it for, I think, uh, 70 euros or something like that. So pretty nicely priced, too. It gets great reviews. And then Fabio, our old friend Fabio from Italy, IK0IXI, has a beautiful rig on, called the Mountain Topper 20-meter transceiver using uh, SE602 chips in there. Um, wow, an article out of um, out of Havana, Cuba. An RF20dB amplifier for DC receivers. Another article out of Russia. This is what I love about Sprat. It's really the, the International Brotherhood magazine. Ideas from around the world. Great stuff. Anyway, um, what's this? Ooh, okay. I, mean, I, I don't even want to put this thing down. It's terrific. And Pete, you know that you're mentioned in here? Yeah. <laughs> Did you see that? Yeah. Did you have you seen it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nigel, Nigel puts in a word, uh, thanking Pete for for help. That's I think where I, I can't find it right here. But anyway, I was happy to see your call in there. All right. Anyway, what else we have on the list? We're going over time, but that's okay because it's Arduino Day. Absolutely. Um, what else you got? Well, it seems like the bands are picking up since we had that solar flare. I mean, 10 meters was wide open yesterday, and of course, 40. I, I was amazed at the amount of activity at 10 o'clock at night last night. It is. A, you're right. It's amazing. I mean, for a while there, the bands were really, really in bad shape because that was a, a really a huge solar flare. But I, I have a couple stories out of the flare that, that I think are, are pretty amazing. I mean, the flare hit on St. Patrick's Day, which was the 17th about one o'clock in the afternoon. And, um, that night I came, I, I came home that afternoon, I guess about three or four hours after the flare, after the CME hit the earth. And I turned on the, 
the BIDX 20, formerly BIDX 2040, <laughs> um, I, I turned it on, and man, in, in either of the frequency ranges, I heard not a single signal, just that disheartening hiss. But, you know, I did the old trick. I disconnected the antenna. I connected the antenna. The hiss went up with the antenna connected. So I knew the thing was working. And, and I just knew from experience that, that something solar had happened. The next morning I get up. And I, I, again, I always turn on the rig and I tune across the band. I hear nothing except one signal. And it's got an Australian accent. Now, I'm on a, I'm on a dipole on 20. This is the day after one of the, the, the biggest solar flare of this cycle. And there he is, VK6MV, Roy, down there in Western Australia. I, you know, I, I always love to work Australia, but especially Western Australia or Tasmania. Either, either one of those places are really kind of especially cool. And I get into this conversation with Roy, and it turns out he's a home brewer. Oh, man, this is making it even better. Like the radio gods have spoken. They are, they are allowing two home brewers to communicate on 20 meters using a dipole at one end in spite of the fact that the this coronal mass ejection has just trashed the ionosphere and uh i think i told you about this i i, I followed up with roy because i wanted to find out whether he was actually using <coughs> he was using a homebrew linear but he was using he wasn't using a homebrew transceiver so we still don't have that first ever homebrew, to homebrew, homebrew. transceiver yeah. homebrew no it hasn't happened yet but um he he told me something about he was on a rhombic because you know, yeah. I guess in Australia, a lot of space down there. Yeah. Put up those rhombics. And, uh, but he, the amazing thing was, he told me, and this, this is really kind of think big Australian. He said, you know, when you get to the end point of the rhombic, you're supposed to terminate that far angle with a big uh, 50 ohm resistance, right? And that, because that helps establish the pattern of the antenna. But he said that he heard about an old trick. He said it seemed to be such a shame to waste all that RF just heating up that resistor. <laughs> so he put a, a three-element beam. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> so way off at the end, you got this rhombic, and way off there, over there at the end, he's got it hooked up. These the two wires that come up hook up to a three-element beam firing in the same direction that you want the rhombic to fire. That's thinking big. Yeah, you, you know. He said, I think he said Les Moxon came up with the idea. You, you know, a, a rhombic can have a 13 dB gain, and you could have like a 6 or 7 dB gain with the beam antenna. Holy you could cow, be no wonder at, I was talking to him. <laughs> you could be, that could be a 20 <laughs> dB gain signal. I mean, and they have a power limitation of 400 watts. I haven't done the calculation, but that 400 watts, big Man. signal, <laughs> big must, signal. It, it must have been pointed right at me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Um, anyway, um, that 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 was uh, VK6MV Roy Roy with the rhombic, and then um, yeah, the, but the bands have been in in, in great shape too. And yesterday I, I worked uh, VK7XX double X, Dos Equis. Dos Equis. Uh, yeah, uh, John uh, on the north part of Tasmania, and we got into a, a good discussion of the world's uh, most interesting man. You know? Yeah, yeah. Great he lives picture. vicarious. He lives vicariously through himself. <laughs> he speaks Russian in French. I love it. The police often question him, yeah, <laughs> just because he's so interesting. <laughs> anyway, we can go on to that. But anyway, that was uh, the, the band's have been in good. I, I I talked to uh, to Japan last night with the uh, the seventeen meter rig. So 
in spite of the big solar flare, um, we're, we're doing all right. Um, what else? You got anything else? Uh, nothing too much from this end. I went to the Vienna Wireless Ham Fest. That was pretty good. Uh, right here in Vienna, Virginia, uh, down at the Northern Virginia Community College. Armin, our friend Armin was there, WA1UQO. We've gone through the Ham Fest together the last several years, and I uh, was very happy to see Armin this time. And uh, he gave me some really cool filters, including a heat kit filter. I know. And it's exactly what you were talking about, because you have the filters, but you don't have the, the carrier oscillator crystal. But but what device comes to the rescue SI now, SI5351. There you go. I, I knew you were going to say that <laughs> anyway. Uh, that was that was really. But, cool. By the so way, that that Heathkit filter is a really really good filter. I mean, they're a little bit big with relative to other filters available, but I I built radios with them, an excellent excellent filter. Yeah. Great stuff. Anyway, thanks to Armin for uh, going through the ham fest with me and for uh, and for giving me those filters. We're going to put them in good use, and we're going to going to note that the source of those filters <coughs> won't finish this thing up. Pete, I want to. I think we're running out of steam here, and I think also we're running out of time. Um, but I wanted to, there's something I put up on the blog that I thought that was really cool. It's a bit of uh, a bit of BitX history. I, I found this old, I know you had seen it before. I hadn't seen it, but it was like one of the early pages in which Farhan describes the design and initial build of the BitX 20. I didn't know this, and I'll share this with our viewers. It's just so cool. It's so kind of international brotherhoodish. Um, Farhan did the original, the design of the BIDX-20 while in flight, while returning to India from Europe. It was a six-hour flight. He was in the airplane at, you know, I guess at 35,000 feet and armed only with um, pencil and paper and the calculator inside his smartphone. And he banged out the design for the BIDX on that flight, got back to India and then built the thing in, over a period of three nights and, and got, it, got it working. So it seems very appropriate that that rig that's really spread all around the world was built in flight while flying over many, many countries from, from Europe to, to India and then, and then knocked out by, by Farhan. Also, when you, when you look at the, that, that, that article, and I have it up on the blog, uh, Farhan notes that he that he too had problems with oscillations on, on parasitic oscillations on the original build of the BIDX. I think he nailed it down to a, a problem with a kind of a self-resonant frequency on one of the coils that was in there. And he, and he switched, he, he changed that around. But I found that encouraging too, that even in this most stable of rigs in the original build, of course, they're there. Those, those, those parasitics are there and it's just a part of the game. So you got to struggle with it. And, uh, but I thought that was really cool. Designed at 35,000 feet over six hours with a smartphone, pens and papers, and built in India in three days. Three cheers for Farhan. Hip, hip. Hooray. There you go. <laughs> uh, by the way, just a quick note here on the KX3. I, I didn't mention anything oh, about that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I continue to uh, work with it, although I did take it out of the garage yesterday. Got up to 95 degrees <laughs> in my garage. Oh, you're, you're kidding. <laughs> no. I said, that's probably not a real good, I, I knew it was coming, so I said, I'm going to take it out of there, be uh, uninsulated garage, and we're, we're moving into warmer weather. So uh, I said, hmm, but. You obviously really like this I thing. do, I do, because I take really <laughs> loving care of it. And you, you, remind, you remind me of me with my original Lafayette Showwave <laughs> receiver. My brother used to make fun of me because I used to put a blanket over it at night oh, yeah. because I was afraid that 
dust would get stuck Absolutely. in the jeweled movements. Yeah, I mean, Ellicraft will probably say it's okay, but I felt 95 degrees is probably not a good idea. And probably ought to bring it in the house where it's a little bit cooler. But I, I think the, uh, the tax gods have shown a light on me. I think I may be getting the uh, linear amplifier with the, oh. with the antenna tuner. Oh well, you know, wait. You, you don't don't move too fast. You need you need to get the special dispensation from George Dobbs. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I, I like think, I need you know, it. It's it's very dangerous to proceed without that. <laughs> I'll I'll put in a word with George for you. Very good. Well, let me tell you, I I have, was listening to it uh, after the flare, and actually I could hear signals. So yeah. you know, it, it's really a superlative receiver. Really. A, very, very nice, well-designed. You could lose it on your desktop. I mean, this thing is one hand. you got a whole whole radio sitting there with all this uh, technology and capability. So um, I, I think we're going to move to, to the 100-watt version. Coming up. Oh, man. Coming up. Very, very cool. Coming up. All right, Pete. I think that, that wraps up uh, 174. 174. Say 73 from Northern Virginia. 73 is from the left coast. Thanks a lot, Pete. We'll see you. Bye-bye. See ya. Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at CafePress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi.